Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, February 26th, and we are talking about another Tech S1. I'm your host, Don Lewis. I'm joined by Fool.com's original offbeat oddball of obtaining outlier ownership opportunities, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how you doing? Dylan, it's been a few months since we did an S1 show. I mean, we had them like back to back to back in 2020. So it's good to be back digging into the weeds again. We created so much work for ourselves that we had to catch up on all the S1s that we did, you know, and that, that's kind of the balance, Brian, is, you know, looking at the new shiny thing versus buffing the thing that you've already been paying attention to. Well, IPO markets are open and between IPOs and SPACs and direct sales things, there's still plenty to talk about. And I think we have a fun one today. Uh, yeah, this one's really interesting. I'm glad that you put it on my radar. Um, we have spent so much time uh, over the last couple years, 2020 in particular, Brian, looking at the meal delivery and online ordering space. And I think generally, we've looked at that industry and just said, this is hard. There's a lot of consolidation. The unit economics aren't great. And while it's something consumers love, it's hard to build a really viable business here. We, we might have an asterisk next to that after today's show. Uh, yeah, I, the asterisk there I think is still appropriate, but <laughs> I, I, I agree. I think that consumers clearly are interested in the, uh, the takeout business, the meal delivery business. Restaurants are clearly interested in that too. And as we've seen from, uh, from DoorDash, uh, from Uber, from Grubhub, from, from Postmates, it's hard, to, it's hard to make that model work. So it'll be interesting to see if the company we're about to talk today succeeds. Yeah. And and so most of the names and, and probably most of the ways that people are interacting with that space is going to be with the kind of third party logistics businesses and, and a lot of the kind of marketplace or platform companies uh, like Uber, like Postmates. What we're going to be talking about today is Olo. Uh, and that's a business that has the proposed ticker symbol OLO. Interesting name. And there's a little bit of etymology to that. Um, they are similar in a lot of ways, but what they do instead, Brian, is focus more on a restaurant-owned and operated model to uh, delivery, online ordering, and kind of all the things that you come to expect from restaurants in 2020. Yeah, they are focused on the enterprise. Uh, what differentiates this company? Differentiates differentiates this company in my mind is that they're actually a SaaS company. They're approaching it from a, a software model, and they've primarily focused on enterprise-level uh, restaurants. So we're going to get into that. But this company has already signed up 400 restaurant brands to their to their name, and many of these uh, listeners have, have ordered from and know. I mean, I'm talking Five Guys, Shake Shack, Chili's, Wingstop, Applebee's, Cheesecake Factory, Dairy Queen, Pete's Coffee, Jamba Juice, John, uh, Jimmy John's, Cracker Barrel, and on and on. So they have done a fabulous job about establishing themselves uh, with these really big name restaurants. Yeah, always good to see large chains as customers when you're in the SaaS space. You know, uh, we, we can very quickly get into markets that we think we kind of generally understand, but don't have a good sense of, you know, really what, what are the trade-offs with different providers. Seeing a, a pretty illustrious list of brands like that is always a good sign. Um, for folks that might have been scratching their heads, as I said, Olo is uh, is tied to what the company does in a way. Uh, the roots for the name are in 
shorthand for online ordering, which is kind of a fun little tidbit. Uh, and I will say, Brian, it is a fun, fun logo to see. I think they're going to have a lot of, a lot of fun messing around with that and, and working it into uh, different things on the branding side in the coming years because it's very simple, clean, and elegant. O L O. Yeah, this company has uh, has again. It's named Olo, which is short for online ordering. They have been interested in this market uh, for a long time. The company was actually founded in uh, founded in two thousand five, and it was uh, the founder is still the CEO. We're going to get into him uh, later. But the idea was to help restaurants take orders via text messaging. So that was their first kind of product uh, vision, where you would take out your phone, you would send a text message to a phone number at a restaurant. Uh, the restaurant would get a, a printout of that order, and then you would kind fulfill it from there. Uh, over time, the business model has obviously evolved uh, quite a bit. They have since moved into an quote-unquote on-demand restaurant commerce platform for multi-location uh, restaurants. And they have really focused um, on the, the enterprise level uh, companies, so the really big companies. And boy, have they done a great uh, job as I mentioned previously, 400 big restaurant brands uh, have joined the platform, and currently they're, they've reached really significant scale. 64,000 restaurants are on the platform. They're processing almost 2 million orders per day. And in 2020, $14.6 billion in gross merchandising volume. Impressive. Yeah, it's it's a quaint idea to think of meal delivery uh, by text message in the mid aughts and kind of where we are now, right? Where it's it's really table stakes for uh, restaurants to be able to provide this in a seamless and easy way for people, particularly because of stay at home. But I think the market was just kind of going this way in general, Brian. I think so too. And I mean, the uh, the founder points this out in the letter that he basically said when he started the company, he couldn't he 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 knew that the, it was, the world was going this way, but he couldn't have predicted the iPhone. And when that came out, it was really a pivotal moment for this company to actually be able to build that kind of functionality uh, directly into their product. So they have consistently been able to see around the corner and see where restaurants are going. And boy, have they taken advantage of that. Yeah. And and a, and a big part of where restaurants are going, 2020 accelerated this, is the idea of digital touch points, ease of order, um, you know, logistics that the customer doesn't have to think about at all, right? It just shows up for you. Um, and, and for as much as that's been on display, I think, in the past year, Brian, it is a very small part of the overall restaurant business. I think this is one of those categories that e-commerce is kind of underpenetrated. It really is. The company's own numbers say that uh, as of 2019, uh, less than 10% of total restaurant sales uh, were done through digital channels. Uh, obviously, that number has accelerated and grown significantly. But uh, as we pointed out previously, uh, a lot of the restaurants that are on delivery platforms uh, do not own the, the customer experience. They are reliant on Grubhub or Uber Eats or whatever to actually give them uh, the order information. Um, Olo provides those same restaurants with the ability to add delivery options right to their own, uh, right to their own website, right to their own app. And what's interesting about this company is it has really taken a uh, approach, an open access approach. So Olo isn't a walled garden. In fact, one of the things they point out is that it integrates with over a hundred different uh, software products that are available to restaurants today. So that could be point of sale systems, it could be payment processors, it could be on uh, tablets, it could be loyalty programs. All of those speak directly to Olo's platform, and boy, is that an advantage for the company. Yeah, and, and I think what they offer is really compelling in a lot of different ways. One of them is just to kind of think about how scattered the uh, digital 
presence is for a restaurant. Like if if you use a handful of some of the names that we've thrown out there, you know, whether it's Postmates, DoorDash, um, Uber Eats, you're managing orders from a bunch of different places. You in in some cases might have multiple tablets set up that are dedicated for specific use and and for uh, that app uh, or that delivery system. Um, what this offers is ability to centralize all of that and streamline all of it. Um, and I think crucially, Brian, what, what it does is it puts the restaurant in ownership of its digital presence. What we don't really get into too, too much with a lot of these apps is they're marketplace apps. And you're kind of separating the customer from the restaurant and you're changing the way that demand would typically flow. That's right. And restaurants definitely want to take that uh, that power back. I mean, I don't know about you, Dylan, but when I'm thinking takeout, uh, the first thing my family does is decide what kind of food we want and where we want to go. We have our local restaurants. And then from there, we go right to the company's website and we place our order. And if, if we came up with a restaurant that was locally and it didn't have online ordering, I mean, we would skip it. We would just go to the next one because why would I bother with placing a call, being on hold and, and saying everything over the phone when I could just do everything on an app or on the company's website? That is exactly the kind of thing that Olo enables. Yeah. And, and I will draw a parallel here, I think, with the streaming universe where uh, it reminds me a little bit of the simplicity of being able to say, I want to watch that. How do I watch that? Rather than saying, I have Netflix, what can I watch? And, and I think ordering through Uber or ordering through any of these apps is that approach, right? Where it's like, is that business on here? And what Olo is trying to do is say, oh, I, I want to order from Mikuba Cafe over in Columbia Heights in Washington, D.C. Um, how do I do that? How do I make that as easy as possible? And what they've been able to do in a, in a very compelling way is offer a very uh, kind of full suite offering to restaurants saying, hey, we're going to set you up with your digital presence. We're also going to make the actual logistics and operations of getting that food to customers really easy. Yeah, that's an important point here. Not only can they enable uh, order taking, they can also uh, enable uh, data and analytics. That's a, that's a product offering that they have, as well as what they call dispatch, which is, again, getting the food to you. So not only could you use your own delivery network if you had those drivers on staff, but you can also tap into the existing ones. So you can tap into the worlds of the Uber Eats and the Postmates and the DoorDashes all in one centralized, reposit all centralized uh, repository. So a really a really useful product. Yeah. And the focus for them is entirely on that B2B side. They are there to be a, a help for the restaurants. They are not really interacting uh, on the consumer side, aside from the way that they're helping businesses do that. They're not creating or aggregating demand in any way um, like an Uber would. Yeah, that's correct. And I think I really think when I want to hammer home that uh, the importance of the openness of the platform, uh, they are enabling over 100 different technolo technology solutions to be plugged in. And that might sound not sound like a big deal, but the company points out that over 70% of its customers have two to four technology providers just on order collection. And that's within the exa existing company. So it, it helps to simplify a company's own uh, technology platform inside it, let alone uh, aggregating all kinds of different payment systems and loyalty, loyalty parts. So uh, that is something that really glues this company together. Yeah. And, and I think that what we are going to see over time is that there's going to be a little bit of resistance to this this aggregated marketplace approach. Um, and actually, I've, I've watched interviews that CEO Noah Glass, uh, CEO of Olo, has done. And he's likened what's happening in meal delivery a little bit to the hospitality and online travel agency dynamic, where early on, hotels were very happy to have the OTAs filling demand for them. 
uh, because they felt like, okay, we're getting some of our extra capacity filled. This is wonderful. And what slowly happened over time was loyalty shifted from the hotel to the OTA. And it meant that the people that were actually supplying the service, supplying the product and the customer experience were being further and further separated from the customers making those decisions. Um, I see that dynamic playing out here too, Brian, in the meal delivery space where the power right now is really being held with the people who operate the apps like Uber um, or Postmates, and they're able to move demand and they're also able you know, to have different deals in place with restaurants and may or may not offer preferential treatment depending on what those deals look like. Yeah, totally. If you are the producer of something, you want to own your customer experience. And uh, to your point, it did make sense early on when this is a nascent industry to outsource that because it was such a small part of your business and dine-in was was nearly everything. That that option allowed you to absorb excess uh, kitchen capacity and generate sales that would otherwise uh, be lost. However, you can go too far in the other direction, as you just pointed out. Uh, when I'm traveling, I go to kayak to, to, to search thing. I have absolutely zero brand loyalty to, to hotels or airlines or all that kind of stuff stuff. Uh, I just want uh, the, the best deal. Uh, that's great for me, the consumer, and it's great for, uh, for for Kayak. It's awful if you are the one providing that. Restaurants have seen that uh, th- play out before, and they know that they have to own the consumer experience. Yeah. And, and for them, I think in particular, because the industry is just characterized by razor-thin margins, any middlemen along the way are going to create problems and a lot of compression. Um, and it's going to feel like a pinch, particularly for small operators. So I think the more you can own that, the, the more appealing it's going to be. And I, I really emphasize this because I think it's a big selling point for Olo to restaurants. Uh, it's it kind of a way to reclaim their digital presence. And I don't know that we're fully appreciating that right now. I, I think there's going to be a lot of different operators in different industries that help businesses do that. And it's going to be something that we see be very successful. And what's the thing we always say about things like this, Dylan? It's like, this sa- this sounds great. Prove it. <laughs> Go yeah, out show into the, the marketplace <laughs> and actually prove it. And as we read, uh, the number of co- the number of big name companies that they have already uh, signed up in a relatively short period uh, certainly proved to me, at least provide social proof that they can go that this 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 is a uh, solution that works. Uh, so love to, love to see that. Yeah, and and I think when we start to look at the financials, uh, you know, 2020 was a, an interesting year for a lot of businesses. Particularly interesting for for companies that operate in these massive growth spaces, like we've seen, like meal delivery. Um, this is a SaaS business, and normally a business that has a ton of subscription revenue coming in. Uh, the dynamic switched a little bit in 2020, just because of the sheer amount of uh, merchandise volume that wound up flowing through the platform. Yeah, there's this company generates revenue in uh, in basically in in three main ways. Two of them we should care about as investors. One of them uh, we shouldn't. So uh, the platform revenue is split uh, between uh, subscription uh, subscription based products. So they charge a per restaurant per month fee just to be on the the Olo platform, and that was about fifty seven percent of platform revenue uh, last year, down from ninety three percent in 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 the prior year. Uh, however, they also have a transaction uh, fee, and that is based on on their dispatch model as well as their analytics model. Uh, that 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 is based on each each transaction they take a, a fee for, and that was forty three percent of revenue uh, last year, up uh, up from seven percent uh, in twenty eighteen. The final revenue path that they have is professional services revenue for uh, implementation. We've seen that with many SaaS companies where they also have a small revenue component just to get people uh, on board. That is only about five or six percent of sales, and it's much lower margin. So we as investors shouldn't pay too much attention. That it's really the platform revenue that we care about. 
Yeah, it's almost like the cost of doing business revenue, right? You, you need it because you want to be able to support your clients. But yeah, I mean, I, I think their professional services stuff is about 25% gross margins versus what we see over on the platform side of about 85%, Brian. So it it's not great for the overall margin profile of the business, but you need to have it. Yeah, but it's still such a small percentage of the company's total revenue. Uh, it's not for like a company like Appian, that's like 30% of their revenue. Here, it's like 5 or 6%. So again, it does it, it affects the margin profile, but not that much. Yeah. And, and as you might expect for the space that this business operates in, uh, 2020 was a banner year for the company. It was a uh, 94% year-over-year revenue growth, bringing them to just under $100 million, uh, in revenue for the year. And, and honestly, that's just the beginning of the impressive numbers for them when you're looking at the income statement, Brian. Totally. Uh, so as you pointed out, 94% revenue growth, still under $100 million. So despite all that dominance of those companies we talked about before, uh, not a huge amount of uh, top line growth. However, the rest of the income statement more than makes up for that small, uh, seemingly small revenue number. We had a DBN uh, dollar-based net retention rate, retention, the good one, of uh, over 120%. They didn't give us the, uh, the exact number, but uh, boy, is that a good number in absolute terms. Uh, gross margin for the company consolidated. 81%. That was up from 69% in the previous period. Really impressive given that this company is still sub $100 million, uh, in revenue. Uh, it gets even more exciting from there though, Dylan. 16% uh, operating margin and $3.1 million in net income. Yes, net income. Dylan, this company is profitable. It's wild because I can't imagine they're trying to be profitable right now. Uh, you know, that's, I don't think that's a major priority for management um, with where they are in their growth stage. And for them to be profitable on less than $100 million in revenue, I think is, is the wildest part to me. It really shows um, there's a strong business here. We're seeing that existing customers keep spending with them, and the margin profile is just fantastic. We're going to get into the customers in a little bit, but I think one of the big reasons why this company is so profitable is the very nature of its business model. It's not going, uh, they call this out right in the, uh, the S1, we don't go door to door, restaurant to restaurant looking for sales. We knock on corporate headquarters. We go after the, the, the customers at that level, and then we can sign, if we win, we sign on thousands of customers uh, with one transaction. Amazing to me, what totally jumped off the page here, in 2020, they're spending on sales and marketing was $8 million. $8 million to get all those restaurants on there. When you are that efficient with your, with your uh, spending on sales and marketing, I can understand how this company is profitable so fast. Yeah, and, and it does kind of make you wonder what their expansion plans look like. You know, I, I think that it's smart for them to be going after a lot of the really big names. You know, for for every large national chain you sign up, you're dealing with hundreds or possibly thousands of locations versus focusing more on the the lower end of the market where there might just be a handful of locations for a mom and pop shop. Um, but you know, there there could be something where they open it up and and go with something that is uh, workable uh, for smaller scale businesses at some point in the future, and that could be just another growth lever for them. Yeah, their focus exclusively for now on the enterprise level is both a positive and a negative. As we said, they're winning, and they're winning without spending uh, much money. So boy, does that create great financial results. Uh, on the flip side, there's only so many of those companies that you can capture. And once you capture the lion's share of them, it can become harder to grow. The company has some answers there, but yeah, you might be asking yourself, how big is this market opportunity? It's surprisingly bigger than I thought it was going to be. Uh, the company points out that... Uh, 
last year, which was a down year, big time down year for the restaurant industry, uh, total sales were still $660 billion. That number is expected to grow to a trillion by 2024. Obviously, Olo's uh, opportunity there is much, much smaller, but they basically said that of the 300,000 or so enterprise restaurants in the United States, that gives them a total addressable market opportunity of about $7 billion. They do have plans uh, over time as they as they they scale to shift down market and start focusing on medium sized restaurants and then smaller restaurants. If they make that move, you can expect their sales and marketing spending to go up uh, significantly. But if they can do that, they believe that that will expand their TAM by another eight billion dollars, so double it. And again, that's just the United States. What's interesting here is that this company is, for now, 100% focused on the U.S. They don't have any revenue internationally. However, a lot of their customers already have restaurants in international markets. So they do plan on expanding into international markets uh, down the road, and they believe that would give them a further $40 billion addressable market opportunity. You add all that up, boy, is that a lot for them to go after. It gets big really fast, and and I think they benefit from a couple things when you're looking at TAM. One is, you know, even if you just focus on the enterprise restaurant TAM that they're identifying, that's seven billion. Uh, their trailing 12 month revenue is 100 million, Brian. You know, there's there's just a lot of room to grow even within that. Um, particularly when you have a solution that is a win win solution. This seems like a business that really benefits when its customers benefit. Um, I think you could debate whether that's true for some of the other meal delivery apps and other meal delivery businesses um, because the margins are so slim in restaurants. The other thing I'll add is basically everyone on the inside side of the restaurant industry has deemed Olo the leader in the space when it comes to software solutions, ordering platforms. We see high praise from Restaurant Business Online, QSR Magazine, AP News. It's always good to see that because that's going to travel really fast in a small industry. It's going to make it a lot easier for people that are exploring these options but maybe haven't made commitments yet um, to take things over. This might be an interesting... I might might be stretching a little bit, Brian, but uh, I I see parts of the way Olo's business works and what they're going after with the enterprise side. And it reminds me of the big businesses, the surprisingly big businesses that Shopify supports for e-commerce. And sure, oh, you know, some of those companies could go out and make their own thing. But when you make something out of the box that works so easily, it's a really appealing solution. It's important to remember that their 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 customers are are restaurants. They are not uh, necessarily uh, tech experts, and they might not have the in-house uh, expertise to build uh, their own custom app and integrate uh, everything together. It does make sense to outsource that kind of stuff. The same way that even big tech companies outsource their video conferencing to Zoom or outsource their CRM uh, to Salesforce.com, uh, etc. So yeah. Yeah. And and I think the the industry is going this way. It's 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 worth highlighting just because it it paints a staggering picture of of the growth that this business has seen. But their annual gross merchandise volume over the past few years, 2013, 50 million. 2014, 100 million. 2016, 500 million. 2018, 2 billion. 2020, 14 billion. That is, it's not even hockey stick growth. I think I think you need another shape for it, Brian. Um, it is it is massive, and even within the industry, you know, for for as as gaudy as some of the estimates are, and I think the company expects about twenty five percent of uh, general orders uh, in the restaurant business to go digital uh, and and be online delivery. Um, even with that, it's still a tiny tiny portion of the overall restaurant pie. Yeah. So that number is not only ridiculously impressive that they have 
basically more than doubled it uh, every single year since uh, since since, uh, since 2013. But yeah, it's still just a drop in uh, a drop in the bucket when compared to the opportunity just within the United States, let alone them having success in international markets. Yeah, and it's it's been huge growth uh, for them on the the merchandise volume side. It's been a huge growth for them as well on the customer side. Um, in 2020, not surprisingly, you know the the businesses that didn't have good digital footprints quickly scrambled to set them up. Uh, in Olo's case, they ended the year with 64,000 active customer locations, up from 42,000 a year prior. So huge growth there. Um, this could be one of those businesses where some of that growth is pulled forward. But what we've seen with a lot of the data that we get from this company is um, generally when they're being used, customers start seeing pretty solid results and they measure that. Yeah, they, they, they do. And we've seen uh, one of the things that this company calls out is that they have consistently grown the way that we expect SaaS companies to grow. They get more and more revenue uh, per location per customer. Uh, in 2019, they got about $1,100 uh, per revenue per location. Uh, last year, that was up to almost $2,000. Actually, it was like $1,760. Let's be more specific because that sounded like <laughs> a much bigger jump than it made out to be. But more importantly, it just shows that they get their, they get their foot in the door with the company and they, they expand. And they expand and they expand, and that's exactly what you want to see if you're in, in, investing in the SaaS business. Yeah, and and they also have a kind of same store sales or a digital same store sales proxy. It's an average number, so I think we need to kind of take it with a grain of salt. But um, for what they track uh, with their customers, digital same store sales grew 44% in 2019, and then 156% in 2020, which is massive growth. Obviously, it's an average, so you're going to have people on all ends of that. Um, but I think it just highlights that there's been a flood and a big activity switch in, I think, consumer expectations uh, about ordering online. And restaurants have really had to make it work. I think this is one of those habits that sticks around after the pandemic. I, I absolutely think that, that that's going to be the case. They do point out that the way they structure their contracts when a customer signs on board, it's typically a three-year uh, deal that they sign with automatic renewals uh, every year th thereafter. And uh, last year, they had a retention rate of, I think, 99%. Uh, so once a, com once a company makes a switch and chooses to adopt uh, Lowe's platform, I can see it being very hard for them to give it up. Brian, we we don't know specifically how big this company is going to be. We have to wait for you know uh, a sense of the valuation. Um, but one thing we can tell is you know it's it's a small business uh, in a, in a lot of ways. Hundred million dollars over the past twelve months. Um, and with smaller businesses, we say it a lot. The leadership really matters. Um, and and I think the CEO and the management team at a smaller business generally has a lot more influence over where a company is going. We mentioned before that Noah Glass, the CEO, is a founder, um, and we generally love to see that. There are also some other pretty positive signs when you look at the management team. Yeah, Danny Meyer, uh, the fame at Restaurateur, uh, the also founder of uh, Shake Shack. Boy, is he somebody that is super well-respected uh, in the restaurant industry and for good reasons. Uh, he actually joined uh, Olo's board of directors uh, several years ago. So that is definitely a big boost of confidence for this company and likely one reason why they've landed the customers that they have. Yeah, I have to imagine that's helpful when you're going out there and you got him helping you negotiate. Um, and, and we see you know, you know, positive glass door signs as well. 93% approval rating of the CEO, 86% um, of respondents recommending the company to a friend. You know, there, there's biases that come with that stuff, but um, it's a good presence for them and it's, it's good showing. 
And it's only 29 ratings. This is a still a relatively small size company. Yet another reason why they're profitable at this stage of the game. So uh, take those uh, take those Glassdoor numbers with an special grain of salt because there's less than three dozen ratings on there. But the early numbers that we've seen are, are pretty good. The other thing that we do have on this uh, this company, while we don't know again the dilution, the number of shares, et cetera, et cetera, we do know that pre uh, IPO that Noah Glass owns about nine percent of the Class B stock. So this is going to be yet another company that comes public with two share classes: Class A, which is the ones that you and I would buy, which would get one vote, and Class B, which are going to be controlled by uh, by insiders that gets ten votes. Uh, so he owns a, a, about nine percent of the Class B. We don't know what the after IPO shakeout is going to be, but that's still some decent inside ownership. Yeah. And you love to see it, especially for a smaller business. Um, and, you know, in, in a perfect world, you have a, a motivated founder that takes a company public and sticks around indefinitely uh, and just continues to grow with the business. We love seeing uh, skin in the game because incentives are going to be aligned. Yes, they are. Now, of course, with any company, there are going to be some risks that come along with investing. Uh, first off, we don't know what the valuation is going to be. I could easily see this thing being a first day, priced expensive and then popping on the first day. So are we going to get 30 times sales, 40 times sales, 60 or snowflake like a number? Uh, I, I don't know there. So uh, taking that risk uh, off, off the table. Uh, one of the things that you might be wondering as I was, was um, how reliant are they on some of their uh, delivery partners. Again, we've seen so much consolidation uh, in that industry from the likes of DoorDash uh, and Uber. The company did point out that DoorDash was uh, 19% of its uh, its delivery revenue. And if consolidation continues in there, that will be a concentration risk uh, for investors to watch. The good thing is, I thought with only 400 restaurants and some of the big names that were on there, that this company would have some serious revenue concentration amongst its restaurants. They did point out that their top 10 biggest restaurant partners, top 10, accounted for 21% of revenue. That's way better than I thought it was going to be uh, at this stage of the game. They also point out that they have um, some reliance on Amazon Web Services. Uh, and we I hate to say it, but they did say that they had, quote unquote, material weakness in our internal control over financial reporting. We've seen a lot of companies uh, have to admit that. It's good to get that out out of the way prior to coming public, but that is a yellow flag for investors to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, I, I think that of the risks you talk about, Brian, that that consolidation in the um, kind of more logistic side of, of the business with DoorDash, Uber Eats, Postmates, et cetera, is, is one to watch because it can shift the, uh, the balance of power when it comes to negotiations. And if there are only a couple of providers in that space, you know, if, if you're going to lean on third-party networks instead of building out your own or having uh, restaurants build out their own, um, you're going to have to pay them. You know, th th there, there has to be something there. And the terms are going to be better and better the stronger and bigger those third-party providers are. That goes both ways too, though, because with uh, Olo having all of these huge name restaurants uh, uh, on their one platform, if DoorDash or Uber was to put up a, a big stink and make some demands, they can say, well, we can seek out alternatives too. Heck, these restaurants definitely have the resources to deliver uh, on their own. But uh, to your point, yes, that is a key stakeholder uh, for investors to keep in mind. And if consolidation continues, that could be uh, a long-term risk to watch. Yeah. I, I kind of look at all of this, Brian, and I say, um, even if we give it a gaudy valuation, um, so say 40 times trailing sales, that puts it right at about $4 billion. Um, 
not outrageous, honestly, given, <laughs> given where the market is uh, and the margin profile for this business, the fact that it's already profitable um, and that it's been so effective with its marketing spend. My hope, and you know, I, we're, we're getting directly in the way of it because we're talking about it you know, and, and getting people excited about it, but I hope that because it's not a uh, to-consumer model, it's one of those companies that might fly under the radar a little bit um, and, and maybe have uh, a little bit more reasonable of evaluation than some of the other stuff we've seen come public recently. Yeah, I'll just say in response, uh, <laughs> Snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, as long as Warren Buffett doesn't go out there and start buying Olo, we might be all right. Um, but that is that is all to say. Uh, for me, I think this one checks a lot of the boxes. Um, really interesting business. Really like the way the financials are coming together. I think the tailwinds are there for them. And I like that they are taking a different approach to a market that we know is going to have a lot of money flowing into it. Yeah, totally. Uh, the the uh, like you just said, boy, does this check a lot of boxes for me. Uh, high revenue growth. Uh, yep. Recurring revenue business model. Yep. Efficient sales cycle. Yep. Founder led management team. Yep. Good Glassdoor ratings. Yep. Massive TAM. Uh, small size. No customer concentration risk. We. Don't know what the balance sheet is going to look like, although we do know that pre-IPO, the company had, I think it was $78 million in cash and no debt. So they are choosing to go public, likely to get their name out there and provide some liquidity. It's not like they need this capital uh, to, to fund their business. So yes, this checks a ton of boxes for me. I would absolutely love it if this thing traded at 30 times sales or 20 <laughs> times sales, but uh, I could see myself nibbling on this company uh, very early uh, at of the gate. The big thing that I want to see, though, that would really make me um, be really, really interested in it is to see some success in international markets. Right now, this is just a U.S. Uh, US story. And while they do have plans to expand into international markets, uh, that is not something that the company has yet proven. And that is not a given because that opens up. Uh, they have to find new delivery partners uh, for those markets. And we don't know how ordering will work outside of the U.S. But if they can open up that uh, opportunity, wow, would that make this an interesting stock. Yeah, Brian, we noted that there is the potential for TAM expansion. And I think, uh, I don't know about you, but when I look at uh, that and I try to appropriately discount it, to some extent, I have to fall back on, well, what has management showed me so far? And you know, this is a business that's been private. We haven't been paying attention to it too, too much. Um, it's also only so big. And so uh, in time, if we see that there's execution on some of the other elements, you trust management's ability to start growing into adjacent markets. And you can start to you know, figure that that number is quite a bit bigger than the 7 billion or so that we started with. That's going to be my starting figure, though. Yeah, that's, and that's perfectly fair. So yeah, I, I am excited to see this company uh, come public. And if I don't buy it in the first month, boy, am I going to be tracking it closely. Yep, me too. I, I'm in exactly the same camp and, and excited to have another business to, to check in on. You know, this, this will be, Brian, circling back to how we started the show, this will be one of the companies that prevents us from talking about an S1 at some point <laughs> in the future because we'll need to check in on it. <laughs> hey, fair enough. I definitely want to see how this thing performs out of the gate. And I also want to see what kind of revenue can we expect out of this company in 2021? I mean, yes, their 2020 numbers were fantastic, but talk about having a, a massive uh, tailwind behind them. Can they keep 
anywhere close to this kind of revenue growth rate up? I, I don't know. I don't think it's going, I don't think their growth rates are going to dive, but uh, uh, what's the normalized growth rate here? 20%, 30%? We don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those businesses that's firmly in the like, you could put a number out there and I'd believe it. it, it is, <laughs> you know, if it if it's double or triple digit, I believe it, you know, and uh, it's it's just the, the difficulty right now of trying to figure out the trajectory of a lot of businesses that have had a lot of growth pulled forward. It really is. But uh, hey, we're going to learn soon because companies are reporting earnings and uh, it's uh, we, we're getting guidance for the year. So that'll be something to watch. That's the beauty. They have to tell us four times a year. Right, Brian? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Brian, thanks so much for joining me on today's show. Anytime, Don. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today. And thank you for listening. Until next time, we'll on. Oh,